Hi again, everybody. I'm Rena Sherbel and excited to bring back Cashflow Hunter, who correctly predicted the Silicon Valley bank implosion and in general has a lot of savvy investing advice for investors. He runs the investing group Catalyst Hedge Investing, which gives subscribers a leg up on what's coming in the investing world. I find Cashflow Hunter to be one of the smartest analysts I talk to. Really enjoy what he has to say and the thought behind it. And for anyone interested, there's a 14-day free trial. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. You've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Cashflow Hunter. Cashflow Hunter, welcome back to the show. Always great to have you on Seeking Alpha, so thanks for coming back on. Always great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So last time we had you on with Brett Ashcroft Green talking about 3M and laying out the different sides of the investing thesis there. And there was some news immediately after that was released. Um, I'd love it if you would, and there's been more coming out. Uh, I'd love it if you would catch listeners up on 3M and how you're thinking about them and how it looks in terms of investing and just the general picture there. Sure. So uh, I'll preface this with uh, some of this is my opinion. <laughs> and then some of this is uh, clearly is very much fact. Um, and I think the fact is facts are actually going to be way outweighing the opinion uh, to the negative for the company. Um, so um, I don't remember when we what we last spoke about whether there was going to be a whether that was pre PFAS settlement. I it was it just was, before, was it? yeah, it was just before. Okay, so um, all right, so the company has had two settlements uh in the past, uh, let's call it uh, two months, three months. Uh, one was for the municipal water multi district litigation, uh, where you had something in the to the order of like three thousand municipal water districts that uh their cases were linked um and um they uh settled for uh the uh remediation of pfas pollution to uh, what the company um agreed to was between 10 and a half and 12 and up to 12.3 billion dollars where uh about uh I have to go back and look at what the uh, the, the terms of the settlement are, but it was, it was something to the order of five or six billion of the of that ten and a half billion would be paid in the next uh, three to four years, uh, lump payments um, made. So uh, you know something like a billion and a half to two point five billion dollars per year, depending on the year, um, and then the 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 tail payments uh, would. Uh, would be paid out over, I think it was something, another eight to 10 years. Um, and if there was an overage over the 10 and a half billion, it could go up to $12.3 billion. Um, and uh, I'll start with that first. Uh, actually, no, let me, let me go. And then, and then they just had an earplug settlement uh, with the, uh, the veterans who uh, had hearing damage 
Um, and they, uh, there's a, a tentative settlement on that for five and a half billion dollars. Um, and that is on the, the uh, both, both settlements actually are on the low end of the, uh, of what a lot of people were expecting um, in terms of what the company's liability would be. And I believe the, uh, it's five and a half billion dollars for the earplugs uh, paid out over five years. So let's assume $1.1 billion per year. So that's that. That is uh, th that. That is one set of facts that that's that's out there. Um, in my opinion, uh, the lawyers for both classes, um, if you look at who they are, they're incredibly unimpressive uh, academically. Uh, you see, you have a lot of guys who you know certainly did not go to top law schools, um, who are the heads of their own firms. Um, you know, and, you know, I think what, what a lot of people would effectually or not unaffectually you know, refer to as ambulance chasers. I think um, lawyers, plaintiffs, attorneys, um, and again, this is purely my opinion, I'm not denigrating anybody, uh, not intending to denigrate anybody, but uh, plaintiffs, attorneys are generally going to look for set settlements rather than try to get the most for their clients. Um, because if you can get a settlement, particularly from a large company, then uh, you the lawyers are kind of guaranteed payments in a, in a guaranteed time frame. So in the case of a $10.5 billion settlement where you have $5 billion, $5, $6 billion paid out over three or four years, if you have plaintiff's attorneys who have a standard uh, um, contingency payment structure, they get a third of that and they'll get paid definitively over that time frame. Same thing with the five and a half billion dollars from the uh, from the airplugs. Well, uh, that's all fine and good, uh, but you know uh, the the indications from previous from trials of individual cases from people who either had the hearing damage or um, there is actually no trial for PFAS uh, pollution damage, but the indications were the, the, the costs were gonna be much higher. Look, uh, the lawyers would have to do a lot of work, A, to, to try those cases, and B, then the company could appeal it and it would be a multi-year process. Um, ultimately, I think the people, uh, their clients would significant, get significantly more money if they went the trial route. Um, but the lawyers would have to work significantly higher at harder and they would get their payments uh, at a significantly longer time frame. So in my opinion, I do not believe that the lawyers came even close to negotiating the best possible deal for their clients. Um, in the case of the water districts, 22 state attorney generals seem to agree with me that the settlement that the uh, multi-district litigation lawyers uh, negotiated was not acceptable. So if you think about it, the average you know, water utility district is you know, not a very big organization. It is certainly not supposed to be a major profit center. And so they don't have big legal departments, but more importantly, they don't necessarily, management doesn't, of those things, doesn't necessarily care if they get everything they're supposed to be getting from 3M for the cleanup, the pollution, because if they get pay, if they get a settlement and it turns out to be in, insufficient to clean up 
to remediate the water pollution, um, who pays the overage? It's the it's the it's the ratepayers, it's taxpayers who pay the overage. So they're sort of not necessarily incentivized to get everything that they should get or need to get from the company to clean up the pollution. And so the state attorney generals, 22 of them, said, uh, called BS on that settlement. And they said, look, you didn't negotiate. This is not going to be probably not going to be enough to clean up these uh, this water pollution. And you're going to and, you know, 3M. Uh, the people holding the bag, if it's not enough, are going to be our taxpayers, our rate you know, the ratepayers. So we're not going to accept this. So the same day, or I think it was the day after um, the uh, the the 3M uh, the earplug settlement was announced, the terms of the settlement uh, for uh, at least. Uh, the Attorney General of New York State agreed to, and I'm assuming she agreed to the same settlement as the other 20, uh, the other 21 Attorney Generals who were uh, blocking the uh, the PFAS settlement. Um, came out and it said uh, that the the amount the 3M is going to have to pay is for the for just the water utility pollution is now uncapped. So it's not just a ten and a half to twelve point three billion dollar settlement. It, in my opinion, it reads that it's a ten and a half billion dollar minimum settlement, and the, the whatever the pollution costs, the pollution, whatever the remediation for the pollution costs, it, it costs. There is not a cap, so um, that's a fact now. And it's weird that the details of that settlement came out the day after the uh, the earplugs came out. It seemed to get uh, sort of ignored or buried. Um, and so I think that that is a materially negative, a material negative for the company in that, yeah, okay, yeah, you, you, you might get away with $10.5 billion, but it's, that's now the, at least what you have to pay. And it could be significantly more. Um, and I, uh, you know, no one asked the company about that on conference calls or anything like that. Um, but, um, and I will also come back to the fact that this is still the the water utility uh, suit is just one of the PFAS liabilities. There's still property damage, personal uh, personal injury. The state attorney generals are still suing these guys. Uh, that wasn't the state attorney generals just came in and sued to uh, uh, to um, alter the uh, the water utility district. There's still other suits. For pollution within these individual states that are still being that that the company is being sued for, and then again you still have the EPA. So long-winded answer: um, the uh, the earplug settlement. Maybe it goes through. I always thought earplugs was going to be small compared to PFAS. I'm not going to get really excited if the company got away with a five and a half billion dollar settlement instead of a ten billion dollar settlement. The delta the delta is four and a half billion dollars. Uh, in the context of a potentially north of $30 billion liability for PFAS, the earplug, that, that difference of what they have to pay out for the, uh, the earplugs is really not all that material, in my opinion. Although I will say now that over the next uh, three to five years, the company is going to be paying out $3.5 billion uh, or more, or somewhere around there, three, three to three and a half billion dollars um, in just these two settlements 
um, just their agreed upon payments. And uh, that wipes out, uh, certainly that, that is equal to what the company has been paying out in dividends. Um, and all of a sudden the dividends are you know, definitively nowhere close to being covered by free cash flow. Right. And that's something that's been discussed, you know, the notion of the vitality of their dividend and what these settlements are going to look like. On the bullish side, I think some people think or are saying that the settlement, uh, the fact that it's been quantified, okay, we can move on. But I think what you're saying is we cannot move on because we haven't exactly quantified it yet. It, it, well, you've quantified it for you have quantified it potentially, if, assuming the settlement goes through and, and for earplugs, right? And you have a high enough participation rate. I think the threshold they said for the deal to be, you know, fully blessed or go into effect is that ninety-eight percent of the plaintiffs have to uh, agree to to that to the to getting what they're going to get. And look, I mean, if the if you say that there are um, Let's just let's say there are two hundred and fifty thousand uh, plaintiffs here, um, and you're agreeing to, um, you know, five and a half billion dollar settlement. Uh, it's you know somewhere it's around twenty one thousand dollars or something, uh, twenty two thousand dollars per uh, per plaintiff. Um, you know, after the lawyers take their third, uh, you're talking about a, a, a pre tax payment to somebody who lost their hearing of fourteen to fifteen thousand dollars. I don't know if those people are necessarily going to accept that. Uh, and they need to get 98% uh, participation for that uh, group to go to effect. But um, what I think the only thing that's truly quantified here on the PFAS is the minimum payment that they're going to have to pay. Um, and, you know, I, I think, uh, A, that the payment for the water utility district uh, uh, pollution could be significantly higher than that minimum. And, and B, it's the water utility uh, liability is still just, in my opinion, a small part of what the ultimate uh, you know, liability, uh, dollar liability will be for PFAS. So what are your thoughts on its dividend in terms of investors looking at that and thinking there's, you know, some some better news coming down the pike? Oh, I think it's only there's, there's nothing but bad news coming down the pike for the pike for uh, for for the dividend. Uh, the company seems intent on spinning out the uh, healthcare division. Um, I, as far as I can tell, that's about two and a half billion dollars of, of of the eight billion dollars of EBITDA that the company has, and I think it is some of the highest uh, cash realization EBITDA um, that the company has. So. Uh, the healthcare division is going to be paying, uh, you know, I think the the plan is a six and a half to seven and a half billion dollar dividend to the company, and then the company will have will will retain twenty percent ownership of the healthcare division, uh, and they will uh, so they'll be they'll be selling that uh, between that payment and the residual stake in the healthcare division that they will then monetize. Uh, they will perhaps try to they will perhaps use that as to fund a dividend but in my opinion they will use the event of the spin-off of the healthcare division to reset the dividend uh for uh, uh going forward uh i really frankly i think the the six and a half or seven and a half billion dollar uh, 
uh, dividend that they're going to get from the healthcare division and the, the stake of the healthcare division that they'll be selling down. Uh, that's just going to go to potentially funding the uh, the liabilities of uh, of just what they've settled from PFAS and the earplugs. Um, the existing dividend they have per share of the current 3M will not be sustainable. Uh, there is a question of whether the healthcare spin will also pay a dividend. Um, my guess is that it will not, or it will not pay a very large dividend because look, they're spinning it out with uh, about three turns of leverage. Um, and they aren't, I guess the, the strategy is to use that business as sort of a, uh, a base business, business that they'll be acquiring other assets or other healthcare businesses with. Um, and you're not going to be able to do that if you pay out of, you know, with that, with spinning out with 3X leverage and still paying a dividend, a big dividend. So uh, net net, I think the uh, whatever uh, is at a dollar fifty per quarter or something like that that the current shareholders are getting uh, for uh, from three M. Uh, I think that that though that dollar fifty, whether it comes in uh, remaining three M shares uh, or the healthcare shares, the total cash that they'll be getting will be lower, and the company will use the spin out um, as the catalyst to ultimately cut the dividend. What do you think about that decision to do the spinoff? Uh, I don't understand uh, how, I, in my opinion, it sort of fits the definition of fraudulent conveyance. You're taking a, uh, you're taking value out of a, an entity that could be used to satisfy future plaintiffs from PFAS. That's, in my opinion, I, 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 it strikes me as 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 a potential fraudulent conveyance action that the company could get sued upon uh, about for uh, in the next subsequent years, but the company seems intent on on doing it, and um, they have I'm sure pretty expensive lawyers who are telling them they can. Um, I'm they they are counting on getting a quite a big multiple it seems for the uh the healthcare business and i'm not quite sure why it would get a big multiple um the healthcare division's organic revenue has been pretty lousy for the past couple of quarters um you know i think the you know maybe we're talking about really low single digits at best organic revenue growth and uh so you know Typically, companies with you know flat to you know maybe one one to two percent organic revenue growth um, don't capture big EBITDA multiples. Um, you know maybe they will be catching maybe they're in some sort of cyclical lull. Um, the company has never really explained that that is the case uh, very convincingly, and in my opinion. And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose the healthcare division will trade at a higher EBITDA multiple than the, uh, you know, the consolidated 3M trades at, but I don't suspect it'll trade at, you know, where the company uh, needs it to trade uh, for there to be major value creation from the spin, in my opinion. Um, and, and I walked through the math on that in my first article on 3M.
that I wrote uh, sometime in May. So are you still short the stock, 3M? Uh, yeah, I, I am. I have a, uh, a short position via derivatives in the stock. Um, and I still think that the credit um, is a, a relatively easy short. Would you advise investors in terms of, you talked about how to short stocks uh, with Kirk Spano uh, uh, a few months yeah. ago. How would you advise investors with 3M right now? So uh, I think if you want to just, it, with any short, um, but you know, particularly for 3M, if, if you want to, if you want to cap your uh, potential downside, which means upside to the stock, um, you buy, uh, you know, buy longer dated puts. Um, the company still doesn't trade with particularly high volatility, so uh, longer dated puts are not particularly expensive, and um, the uh, the events that are going to uh, do damage to the valuation for 3M, um, they are, they are, there, there is a somewhat of a definitive timeline now. Um, the, uh, the EPA should be, the spin out uh, should be happening before year end. They're trying to get it done by year end. Um, and I think that the dividend cut will probably come somewhere in the fourth quarter, um, if not the first quarter. So, you know, you can buy, uh, you know, puts that are, you know, not that far out of the money for say, you know, January uh, or April of 2024 expiry. Uh, the vol implied volatility is 26, which is pretty low. That means that the, uh, you know, the, you, you have a pretty, you're not going to have much, it's not going to be very expensive to buy, say, 95 strike or uh, somewhere in that neighborhood puts for January or, or April of next year. Um, and you don't need a very big move for, in the stock for those puts to, to pay off pretty handsomely. Um, and, uh, you know, April's actually uh, maybe the sweet spot because you'll, you could potentially capture the, uh, the dividend cut uh, continued weakness in the core business. And then I believe the EPA should be getting their um, hazardous material designation for PFAS sometime in the first quarter of 2024. Um, if not, if you just want to be short the stock, you can be short the stock. Um, you know, even when, you know, you know, you've had this potentially great news from the uh, settlement in uh, uh, from the uh, the earplugs, you know, the stock went from uh, 98 to a high, uh, 99 really, uh, to 107. So yeah, it kind of stinks to have uh, something go up in your face 8%, but it's not like, uh, you know, a GameStop situation from two years ago where, uh, or two and a half years ago where the, the stock went up uh, 20 fold. That's not going to happen with 3M. Um, and you can also uh, mitigate some of your um, your potential downside in the puts uh, in the, being short the stock. You can sell some um, some covered puts. Basically, you sell uh, you know lower strike puts in addition to your short. Um, you know, most brokerages will will allow you to do that. Um, and uh, you know that just if the if the stock cracks 
you know, your, your puts are going to get exercised and, but your shorts have come down. So you'll make a little, you'll make some money on that trade. And if the stock doesn't go anywhere, your the premium you premium you take in from being uh, from selling the puts um, helps off offset the uh, you know uh, the cost of the short. Can you envision any catalyst to the positive side that would make you rethink or adjust your your bearish take on on three M? Yeah, I mean, you always have to be. Uh, you always have to think about that with uh, with shorts. Is what, you know what could really tag you. Um, and the 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 major downside would uh, a be a successful spin of the healthcare business, where the healthcare company uh, healthcare business trades at some big multiple, um, and the stock really um, really takes off. I think a lot of people are hopeful that uh, GE Healthcare. Um, which was spun out of GE uh, sometime late of late into 22, I believe. Um, and, you know, that stock got spun, spun out at, I think it was uh, around 60 bucks a share. Um, by April, the stock was close to 90. So it was a 50% move higher in, this, in that spin out. Um, you know, this is a big enough business potentially that, if it gets spun out and trades up fifty percent, that will, um, that will, uh, that would hurt the shares. But, um, you know, you don't have to be short if there's a spin out, and you don't want to be short this the healthcare business. You can just cover the shares that you're short via the in, in the healthcare business. I'll also add, by the way, that uh, GE Healthcare stock has come way back down. Um, and is only trading at about uh, a 10 to 11x EBITDA multiple. Um, if the 3M healthcare business gets a 10x, only gets a 10x EBITDA multiple, that's going to be considered a, a major, major disappointment. I think um, from all the, uh, everything I've read is people are thinking that the company will get spun out at a 12x multiple. And you know potentially trade up to fifteen uh, x, um, so ten x is like a disaster. And, and by the way, that that would that would actually be a a, a net negative to where the stock is right now. Um, and, and then obviously another you know uh, what could make the stock work on the bullish side would be uh, you know some sort of broad settlement for all of their PFAS liabilities. You know covering all their personal injury, all their property damage, all the state attorney general suits, and uh, then uh, the EPA not getting hazardous material designation for PFAS and the EPA saying, okay, well, you don't owe the federal government anything. There's no, there's not gonna be any, any super fund liabilities here, which again, I find highly unlikely, but anything's possible. Switching gears a little bit to uh, another stock that you've discussed on the podcast before on investing experts, also with Kirk Spano, is Iris Energy. Yeah, that one's been super interesting. Get into it. Get into it. Get into it. Let's hear. Forget where the stock was when Kurt when Kurt and I spoke. It was in May, end of May, May twenty third. May twenty third. Okay. So the stock was at uh, 467 and uh, I had originally written about the stock. It was about 373, I believe. So, you know, it had already had a little bit of a move. Um, the stock uh, caught a really nice bid up to uh, up to eight bucks, um, which, you know, I thought 
you know, A, a certainly gave people uh, a trading opportunity. Um, it then fell back down to um, right around uh, where it was when we first had our discussion. So it's right back to like that 467 level. Um, but what's become very interesting for the company, uh, a couple of things. Um, one, uh, you know, Bitcoin had a, a nice move higher and that, that is probably, and, and all Bitcoin related stocks had a huge move. Even the companies that had, uh, you know, my opinion are terrible business models that make no sense, um, like Coinbase or MicroStrategy. Um, all those things moved up um and iris caught the uh caught part of that tailwind um but and then moved up with bitcoin um but uh what has happened since is is twofold one uh the uh well the company's going to be reporting earnings i believe on the 13th but um they released a they released monthly operational updates um they've been increasing uh their hash rate uh exit hash rate and um they are uh but the most recent uh, uh disclosure was super interesting it showed the strength of their renewable power um component they have uh renewable power ppa in place in their texas facility um so cheap energy and I don't know if you're aware, but Texas has had major energy shortages. So the company actually disclosed uh, this past week that they had a negative energy cost um, for the month of August, which means that um, they either uh, whatever whatever they were uh, either they used they used the energy that they used for mining Bitcoin and the excess energy that they had they sold into the grid and they ended up with a, a negative cost of energy. Um, and I am not, it's not entirely clear to me uh, if that meant that they still mined Bitcoin or they didn't mine Bitcoin and they just sold all the power they had to the grid because it was more profitable to do that. Whatever they did, I'm sure they maximized the cash flows. So that's just, that's just interesting in and of itself. Um, What's also, what's another leg that I think is fascinating, and I wrote about this in an update about Iris, is they also announced that they purchased uh, about 100 microchips from NVIDIA for about, um, it wasn't 100, it was $10 million, and I think they paid, they bought 240 microchips. Numbers are maybe a little different, but um, anyway, the important thing is, is that that, uh, basically puts them into the high performance computing data center business, which is just, you know, that's, that's a big multiple business. It's a big growth prospect business. And it is, uh, you know, something that is way different than uh, the other Bitcoin miners. Um, so, you know, look, they have these state of the art facilities that have, you know, uh, um, cheap power and so instead of being just a bitcoin miner which is potentially a business which is definitively a business where you're dependent upon the price of bitcoin for your profitability they all of a sudden have a an angle where they can get it be in the data center business for high performance computing and ai 
which is going to be a really nice growth area and is the growth story for the data center industry uh, right now. And it was, it was actually really interesting because uh, I went to a, a conference, um, uh, Piper Sandler hosted a macro conference this past week and Jim Chandos uh, was one of the panelists and uh, he was you know, describing uh, how he is short data centers. And the reason he short data centers is he said, look, everyone thinks that AI and high performance computing is going to be great for as a you know for the entire data center industry. And he said, look, there are going to be some data centers that are um, that's going to be a huge boom for. And he didn't mention Iris, but it seems to me Iris is going to be one of those companies. But he said, actually, if you look at most uh, data center operators, um, AI and high performance computing are major negatives because their existing facilities are not equipped to handle the energy needs um, or just the uh, the cooling needs or, or, or you know, the, just the centers are not designed for AI or high performance computing. So they're gonna have to spend a lot to get those facilities up to, up to, pay, up to, uh, up to snuff. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So not only is, is Iris um, beautifully positioned to have this, AI high performance computing growth angle, um, and which sets them apart from other Bitcoin miners and everyone and other people in the Bitcoin space. It actually, they're they're not just going to be in the data center business. They might be one of the best performers in the data industry, data center industry, which you know, either the stock should react on its own from that, or it makes them a potential takeout candidate. From uh, by other data center operators. Were Were you surprised by the announcement with Nvidia? Were you impressed? Did you see it coming? Were you What do you think about it? Well, I had written about uh, the company has been has been discussing that they said, look, if if Bitcoin doesn't work for us, or even if it does work for us, we've still got spare capacity. We could get into this high performance computing AI biz um, sec sector really easily. In fact, the company had an agreement with Dell um, or not an agreement, or they had a, they were negotiating with Dell. I think it was like two or three years ago and the negotiations never really materialized in anything into anything great, but um, no, they've, they've discussed this in the past and I wrote about it in my previous articles on, on Iris and as, as a potential and it's a free option and the stock moved up nicely on the day of the announcement, although it's not entirely clear if it was that uh, announcement with the NVIDIA purchase or that was the same day that um, the uh, SEC, or the, the, a court found that um, Grayscale um, had the right to become an, an ETF. So everything in Bitcoin rallied that day um, and it's subsequently fell, fallen down. But Look, I don't think the nice thing about Iris is you're not paying, you're paying a very low multiple of their Bitcoin mining profits right now for the current company. Um, and I think it's an even lower multiple than people uh, really understand because of the cash flow that the company's been able to generate um, over, um, you know, so since I last re uh, reported a balance sheet. If you look on Bloomberg, the, um, the company, Bloomberg is showing that the company still has net debt of about $70 million. It actually has net cash as of uh, as of May 
of $55 million. And I believe that cash balance has gone up um, absent the money they spent uh, to buy those NVIDIA chips. So uh, the company, look, I think right now you're only paying about 4X EBITDA for the core Bitcoin mining business, um, perhaps less. Um, and, um, you know, you're getting this data center business for free. Um, so, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons why the, the stock is sort of being overlooked, um, you know, potentially because it's it's listed on Australia and, um, you know, it's a relative small cap, but this is a very exciting story. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I, I think a theme of the Investing Experts podcast in general and probably a theme of investing is look for the disruptors and the disruptors are coming all the time. You think it's you know, you think they're just disrupting one industry, but I think for a company to really have a successful vision and strategy, they need to be looking outside the box. And I think this is a really nice example of that. Look, I, I agree. And uh, I think it's just showing that the you know, if, if, you have, if you have good core assets, they have good core assets. They have modern facilities uh, with cheap power contracts. And there's a lot you can do with that. Absolutely. So... Honestly, there's towards the end of our conversations, I always feel like there's a whole other conversation to be had, but kind of keeping it in terms of catalyst hedge investing, how you're looking at the markets, how you're looking at sectors, what would you say to investors you feel like is a catalyst that you're looking at or thinking about? Well, uh, so in in terms of uh, you know, major positioning right now. I, I still think this PFAS thing is ugly and uh, is going to continue to be ugly. Um, I think the, uh, uh, I think Iris is a, is a, could be a long in a pair trade against other data center operators. So you can be short digital realty, you can be short, uh, Equinix is a better operator, digital realty, better balance sheet, better assets. Um, but I think that's a nice pair trade. Um, but macro wise, uh, I think, and I, I wrote about this for my subscribers um, this week. Um, I think the regional banks are going to, the, those stocks potentially could have a problematic couple of months. Um, number one, I think earnings are going to be kind of lousy. Um, you know, they're, Why? Uh, well, they, uh, the, the, the shape of the, of the rate curve um, it, although it's less inverted than it was, it's still pretty ugly. And they're gonna and the cost of deposits is gonna be pretty pretty bad for them. So whereas you know they're not on this uh, this death march that a lot of uh, banks were at um, you know post Silicon Valley, um, where they were bleeding depositors and they had this these massive holes in their balance sheet. Um, they seem to have survived that that run on the bank panic, um, but their earnings profiles, at least from a net interest margin basis, are going to be pretty bad. And then you really start. I think you're going to start potentially having some losses in their real commercial real estate lending portfolio um, portfolios. So, you know, you have that. So I think uh, third quarter for the regional banks, they'll be reporting in, I guess it's going to be a, a, in about a month, um, sort of the, uh, the third week of, generally the third week of October. Um, and I think the, the earnings results are going to be pretty bad. 
And then while the uh, the stocks are off their lows, uh, you know the the KRE, which is the uh, regional bank ETF, was uh, was down around thirty five bucks from from sixty. At the the low point, it's back up to uh, the low forties. Um, I think that if the KRE, um, which is just representative of, of you know the basket of regional banks, um, if it's still down at these levels um, come Thanksgiving, you're gonna start having some year-end tax loss selling. And, uh, you know, sort of across the regional banking space. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? So I think that's a that's a, a just a just a broader macro trade of a combination of bad earnings, bad earnings outlooks for the regional banks. And then year-end tax loss selling. Um, we saw some pretty violent year-end tax loss selling pain in the tech space last year um, in December. Um, so that's a macro type trade. And then one other thing I think a lot of people are are seemingly ignoring. If you look at a long uh, long timelines of the uh, of interest rates versus uh, either the S and P or Nasdaq. Um, the the earnings that earnings or earnings yield or earnings multiple um, versus uh, interest rates um, generally was pretty correlated and we've had this massive divergence um, pretty much since about March where S and P and Nasdaq particularly have uh, their their valuations have gone up a lot as interest rates have gone up. And that's a pretty, pretty, uh, a pretty big divergence from uh, where the the normal relationship is, uh, and I think that's uh, you know something like uh, that can persist for a while, but you know generally uh, earnings are discounted back by some sort of interest rate thing. And the higher interest rates go, typically you don't have earnings multiples go. Um, so uh, I think that's something that you know people are clearly anticipating uh, interest rates coming back down fairly uh, fairly quickly. Um, and uh, this is actually something I, I've written about for both my subscribers um, and you know general uh, seeking alpha more for my subscribers, but um, that you know. Um, most rhetoric coming out of the Fed is higher interest rates for longer. Not necessarily the interest rates are going to go much higher, but that they're not going to be coming down anytime soon. So if the bet that you're owning stocks is because uh, the Fed is going to be lowering interest rates, you know, aggressively next year, um, I think that's probably a uh, or potentially a um, uh, not necessarily the uh, is going to you know materialize for you. Right. The right bet. Right. Yeah. Um, Cashflow Hunter, really appreciate it. Always appreciate our conversations. And I think anyone who would agree with me that this is some pretty sharp thinking and savvy investing. Uh, you have a 14 day trial for Catalyst Hedge Investing. Anyone yeah. looking to become a subscriber or learn more about what you're talking about with subscribers? Really easy way to uh, get some edification there. Uh, really appreciate and they get Cash access to me too. <laughs> hey, I don't, it's important I don't respond thing that there to is. general, uh, you know, just general uh, messages anymore. 
Yeah, but. no, that's right. You you don't have to just read or, or listen. You can actually engage. So right. uh, yeah, that's probably the number one selling point for sure. Always appreciate you, Cashflow Hunter. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, Ryan. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.